0: On today's episode of May the Record Reflect.
1: You know, we we talked about that human trafficking case with with Vinnie Brooks. And in in opening, I talked about going into a world of human prostitution, of human Mm -hmm. trafficking. And I said, you're not going to like the witnesses. You're just not going to like them. You're going to hear from a young woman who did things that will not make sense to you and she has prior felony convictions and she and I and I just painted her as a miserable human being. my instinct was to like apologize for her. Um, But a very, you know, very senior, very seasoned, you know, trial attorney. My partner in that case told me she told me she's like, no, don't do it. She's got to own it and you've got to eat it. (laughs)
0: Mm.
1: And so in opening, I, I undersold the government's case. And, I, and I'd and listened to her, I'd listened to Vinnie, and I knew she was going to be incredible. There's a part of me that's like, yeah, she's got some problems, but wait until you hear this, folks. Not the approach. The approach is that she is just a broken human being that has done some horrible things. You're going to believe her because of the corroboration. And and people are like, oh gosh, what is the government doing? Like, this sounds like a terrible case. It's, it's totally relying on her. But then they hear her and they see the corroboration. And they're like, I don't even care about the corroboration. She was so good.
0: That was Mike Beckwith, and this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome to episode 26 of the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan. It's a new year, so happy 2022. I'm quite excited to introduce you to our first guest of the year. He is new to NIDA, and it is such a pleasure to welcome Mike Beckwith to talk about one of the fundamentals of trial practice, the direct examination. Mike is with the U.S. Department of Justice, serving as Chief Assistant United States Attorney for the Eastern District of California. He spent all but the first year of his 15-year career span as a federal prosecutor, working a caseload that's included international extortion and the taking of children as hostages, human trafficking, extraditing and prosecuting one of the top 50 drug traffickers in the world, Ponzi schemes, money laundering, corporate embezzlement, and tax evasion. Prior to all that, Mike was a law clerk for the Honorable Morris C. England Jr. of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California in Sacramento and a U.S. Army Ranger. Mike Beckwith is just the kind of fellow we want on our side, and he could not be nicer if he tried. Here's our interview. So you have a really exciting and interesting job in law. Do you mind talking a little bit about your work for the DOJ? Sure, sure.
1: So, um, I started uh, from a, a clerkship uh, working with a district judge, and I knew I wanted to be in court. And so there was, you know, the choice was either a DA's office or a U.S. attorney's office. And I thought um, the scope of work was more interesting in the U.S. attorney's office. And so I wanted to get into court. I wanted to be a trial attorney. And this was, um, you know, the way to do it after a clerkship. And so the the type of work I've done started with uh, I was doing immigration cases at first, and my U.S. attorney gave me eighteen months, and he's like, "If you can survive without blowing anything up for eighteen months, we'll you know we'll we'll keep you around." <laughs> um, and but but shortly after that, I went into uh, narcotics uh, and violent crime, and you just get a ton of uh, you know courtroom experience there. Uh, as a result. Uh, of that, I, after about four years, I moved over to white collar, which is where I met Ruben uh, chasing bankers in Manhattan, and then um, I'm now uh, managing our narcotics and violent crime unit. And so, I've kind of seen the gamut of cases. We've done everything from wiretaps and and you know international narcotics to uh, I'll talk a little bit about it today, maybe. Uh, inter- one of the, one of the cases we ended up trying was uh, international bribery case. We've done tax cases, um, all of it based on, you know, the investigation of agents. And so um, earlier in your career as an AUSA, generally you're doing reactive cases. And then as you start to, um, you know, learn the learn the craft a little bit, uh, you, you start to direct the investigations. And it's very, very helpful uh, because then you help to uh, kind of build the case along the way. And so oh, it's been 15 years now. Kind of a wide variety, everything from Ponzi's and uh, money laundering to, uh, you know, drugs and and uh, violent crime.
0: Yeah, that really gives you an interesting background. You've had to learn so many different things, I would imagine. So, cases are one on direct examination. Do you agree or you disagree?
1: Uh, I, I would agree. I think that I think that dr- the direct is what builds your case and. If this is true for a prosecution and for any case that a plaintiff's bring, I think there's a strong correlation between probably criminal practice, uh, you know, criminal practice and, and uh, plaintiff's work in, in that you're both attempting to prove elements and, and establish elements and improve a case. And so the direct is what's setting up that case. Um, all the directs that, that you have the burden uh, to uh, a, a proof, and all the directs set up that case, it sets up your closing. Uh, Your opening looks to what you expect the the evidence in the case will show. Uh, And then your rebuttal is a chance to highlight uh, what you've drawn out on uh, on direct. Um, So, yeah, I think it is it's the foundation and and it is the uh, it is certainly for the for the case. And and these are the tools and the the pieces of evidence that you use in each of your arguments um, that you'll eventually make to the jury.
0: So when you and I were negotiating this episode a couple of weeks ago, you remarked to me that you think that direct is actually harder than it seems. Um, Cross-examination is really the one that makes people nervous and all angsty, but direct, not so much. So what do you think makes it so challenging?
1: Sure. It's a great question. I think it's the preparation that goes into it because every witness uh, is going to be different. um, And a lot of your direct is based on... Um, the strengths and the weaknesses of your witnesses. And so, I mean, just from a, I think about, you know, putting a trial together, the amount of time um, that that I would spend putting a direct together uh, compared to even the cross-examination of the defendant in the case um, is probably more time spent on the direct. We relatively recently did a a tax case in which um, the lawyer was just failing to pay his taxes on the three and a half million that he was bringing in every year. And I spent a fair amount of time preparing a cross, but I spent so much more time, um, on, uh, the witnesses preparing, certainly preparing, uh, you know, his, uh, his accountants, um, for their direct examinations. And so I think what makes it harder is the management of witnesses and the time you've got to decide what to leave in and what to leave out on cross in general. Uh, you're in. You're out. You're going to make your points. You get up on your soapbox. You hop off. Um, it is much more. Uh, in, in some ways, it's much more surgical in nature. I, I know with a witness. Um, in general, I'm, I'm going to try to get three or four points out on cross. Now, with you know, with with a, a, a defendant in particular, sometimes you can run your entire case through that defendant on cross. Um, but if you've done a good job on direct, uh, you may not need it. And so I think much of the cross uh, is about the lawyer, whereas direct is is much more about the witness. And so it's less controlled and it's it's harder to actually prepare for. If you've got a great witness, if you've got an agent that's been around for 20 years, let's say an IRS agent or a DEA agent, you, you know, you can kind of do the what happened next and then what happened and what happened after that that's fine but the prep that goes into that point getting to that point um is is not uh it's it's not insignificant and and especially if you have civilian witnesses um in that tax case that i mentioned we had cpas who had kind of moved quickly uh through doing the taxes for this lawyer and and i think they were a little embarrassed to be up on the stand and so they didn't they 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 were not going to give me what i was looking for they had their own agenda and you've got to work through prepping them. I mean, what they saw was truth and you got to get that out of them. But but they want to shade it in their own way. And so you're working and sometimes you're working against, uh, you know, your own witness. I, th- I think it's the preparation that takes time um, and, and more so if the witness is disagreeable.
0: Yeah, um, it seems like a challenge to try to control the flow of information that is presented to the jury when so much of it is out of your hands.
1: And one, one of the things that we'll always do is, is, is talk about with a, a witness on direct, you know, be they a very experienced federal agent or a civilian, it's, it's, it's deliberate in small chunks. And so you know, two or three sentences with each answer.
0: Direct is often thought to be the part of the trial that has the least drama or interest that would compel a juror's close attention. And especially if the examination happens to be with an expert witness, because you have to introduce them and qualify them as experts, and it's it almost can be a little bit like an audio version of their CV. So, how can you keep direct examination from being boring?
1: Sure, um, I, I I think you've got to make it about um, about the witness, and I, I do think jurors are are very interested in, in, I think, you know, a lot of times we'll get initially, you know, hesitance of, what am I doing here? But once they've committed, once they've been sworn in, I, I think they are great Americans who are just trying to do their job and they want to listen the more. We can make this about the witness and less about the lawyer, um, the better. And so with a with the CV, with the expert, um, oftentimes we want to humanize that person. We just had a, a pharmaceutical, well, it's called a diversion case, a trial in which a doctor was prescribing opioids um, outside of the standard of care. We have an expert that that gets up there and and is going to tell you what the standard of care is, and it almost becomes a battle of the experts, which in a criminal case is never a good thing for us, but humanizing him, getting him to slow down in his delivery, and so part of the part of it is the prep, and then kind of walking through uh, will we'll, you know why? Why'd you become a doctor? Why, you know, where did you go to med school? How'd you make that choice? Um, and and so infusing some, I think, uh, uh, humanity in that CV. So you know, you you went to Harvard for med school. That's great. Why did you go there? You could have. Seems like you could have gone anywhere. Invariably, you're going to get something out, and you're going to start to tell the story of this person, and the jurors are going to start to relate. Now, hopefully, you have an interesting. Uh, an interesting witness. And you've chosen your expert, you know, appropriately.
0: The case that you mentioned, the opioid case, of course, it's in the news all the time. Um, but a lot of Americans also, unfortunately, have had their family lives touched by that, um, by overdoses and drug abuse and the crisis. And so that can pull them in too.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and and, and anything that you think will bring uh, or, or, you know, pique the jurors, attention. And I think that's, that's critical.
0: So um, it's one thing to establish rapport by breaking the ice and creating this conversation with your witness and helping the jurors identify with them and to connect with them. And that's a skill that we all need to have in our interpersonal relationships. So it's not just lawyers. But sometimes the witness who is on the stand, who is someone that you're counting on to help you with your case, and to help you with your client has done really terrible things in their lives. And I know that you've prosecuted drug trafficking cases, sex trafficking, violent crimes, armed robbery, and all of that kind of stuff. So you have some experience with this. How do you humanize kind of a despicable human being who also happens to be your witness?
1: Everyone has a story to tell. And in, in most cases, there's a reason for why they did You know, these despicable things Mm -hmm. Um, in that in that tax case, it was actually harder to bring the jurors around to our CPAs because they were just so defensive.
0: Ah, But in a a murder,
1: oh, it was it was it was next to impossible. And talking to the jurors afterwards, they did not like those witnesses. But we've had we've had cases in which um, you'll put a murderer on the stand and they're going to explain why they did what they did and, and, and not, not in the same. And in, 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 I mean, we would never put a, you know, kind of a cold blooded murderer on the stand in, in, in the sense that like home invasion type thing, but in the gang context, in mm-hmm. the gang context, there is some, sometimes there's a story that can be told and, and that person, as long as they own it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as long as they are telling the truth, and as long as you can corroborate what they're saying, um, I actually would rather have a violent criminal on the stand than a white-collar person who's trying to squirm out of it. Um, and, and so these, these CPAs were very difficult. Um, I had, uh, we in the past, one of the most compelling witnesses that I've actually ever seen was uh, a woman who worked for a human trafficker, and she, without getting into too much, I mean, it'll, it'll take forever to explain the whole the whole setup, but she would work these young girls, underage girls, in Vegas while the while the boss, the pimp, was in Sacramento. And so this is called going on automatic. And and these huh. and she would take these girls around and and she would prostitute them on behalf of the pimp, who was incredibly violent and um, and a very dangerous human being. Um, And so Vinnie Brooks had a story to tell, and 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 that is one of abuse, and that is one of uh, of of personal degradation. And um, but when she got up there and owned it, that was compelling. I I I mean, she just she tells her story. She tells why she did it, and 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 she she says, I, I and basically tells the jury that I'm sorry. I mean, she was she was amazing.
0: So let them tell their story and be, be honest.
1: I think so. Absolutely. And, it's, and and really, for for us, for the prosecutor at that point, for any lawyer at that point, you're just a disembodied voice. I mean, if you the, the vision that right. I always think of is a, it's a disembodied voice in a dark room. And I'm just asking the next question. And I want all the attention to be on that witness. Be that right. person despicable. Be that person, you know, a federal agent who is, you know, who worked on 9-11 down in, you know, Southern Manhattan, and you're going to see this ping pong, you're going to see this heads going back and forth, you just wait for the next question, and then the jury's head will focus on and listen to, um, you know, listen to that witness.
0: You've worked on some really um, interesting, high profile, kind of scary cases, do you feel like your life has ever been threatened or in danger because of the work that you've done? Do I just watch too much TV?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I, I don't. I mean, early on, very early on, I had uh, a very experienced defense attorney standing at the podium with me. And usually in federal court, there it's a bigger courtroom, and so there's two podiums. And but for some reason, this judge had one, and we're sentencing this guy, and I'm right next to him, and 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 this very seasoned, uh, very experienced defense attorney sees me grabbing my pen, and as like you know, in in a way that I, I'm. <laughs> I can defend myself if I have to, and his defensive
0: like, mode, yeah. yeah,
1: right, right, right. And he's like, "Whatever, Mike." He's like, "You are so far down the list. First, <laughs> actually, is that guy up there who's sentencing him. The judge needs protection. I'm next because I didn't represent him very well. You're just a cog." And I was like, oh, "That that makes total sense." And you know, so no, I, I um, my wife and I both do this. Um, we don't. That is not a conversation that we have. And and there have been. You know, cartel members, there have been human traffickers, there have been very violent people. Um, in some cases, they're not the ones that are worried because they know the system. It's, mm-hmm. it's the it's some of these these white collar guys that get th- that lose it. Um, Interesting. They're, they're a little more worrisome to the U.S. Marshals. But we're not I, I, just not a part of our life that we that we're concerned about.
0: Good. I'm glad. I'm glad I just suffer from an excessive imagination then. What should you do when opposing counsel raises an objection during your direct examination? What's the first thing you should do?
1: I stop and I let the court answer the answer the objection. And we've prepped our witness to do the same thing. So as soon as there's an objection, the witness should stop talking. I'll stop. And if we're doing our jobs right, if I've prepped that witness correctly, if I've done my job right, I'm well within the rules. And so usually 95% of the objections are just overruled. Um, And I don't have to say a single thing. If the court's like, well, you know, I, I I don't, you know, Mr. Beckwith, and then you're going to have, you've thought through your direct because there's been so much prep that um, you're, you know, you're, you're going to have an answer. Well, this, this piece is, you know, the, the foundation for this piece of evidence is X and Y, and this is why it's relevant. And this is why it's authentic. And it's coming in, you know, for these reasons under this rule. And, and we actually get in federal court, we actually will get in trouble if we do speaking objections. And so it really has to be, you know, objection, hearsay. The court will think about it then look to us. Why is that not hearsay? And then we have to have some answer ready to go right there. And what will happen is uh, eventually the defense will just stop because they're conscious of the jury and the jury's time. If your prep is squared away if you've thought about it and you stay within the rules there isn't going to be a back and forth. The last thing you want is some evidentiary flight in front of the jury. And so one of the ways we make sure this happens is with a trial brief. We prep the judge ahead of time and and so all major evidentiary disputes are are in writing before the court. Hey, here's you know, this is this business record. It's coming in under this exception. Here's the context for it. And usually the defense will respond with you know in writing or whatever and and the and the judge will very rarely do they rule ahead of time they'll usually rule as we start presenting the evidence and as we actually lay the foundation but because we've teed up the issue for them it's a non issue it's coming in and now they now the witness is talking about you know whatever the document or the, the you know the image that we've put in
0: what do you think listeners need to know about using visual aids during direct is it helpful is it a good time to introduce them
1: well, it's a, it's a, it's another judgment call. Um, it's, it's a balancing kind of act there. I think with certain things, if it's a, if, if a photo can help orient someone very useful, if, a, you know, a series of names, because you've got this crazy rogues gallery of characters, you know, in, in a gang or whatever, or, you know, we had, you know, in a recent white collar trial, we had like, you know, a number of, uh, a number of players. And so we'll just put their names up on a board. Okay. When you're talking about the person that made the phone calls to get a hold of the victims, you're talking about this person right here, number three, Mr. Mr. Jones. And the witness will say that that's correct. Mr. Jones did this. And so it redirects, reinforces a connection between a defendant or, you know, some relevant witness and what that another witness is talking about. And so for process, if there is like a money laundering, in a money laundering case, or if in, a, in a products liability case, if there's a process, you know, a visual aid that, that we've done, brief the court on ahead of time, hey, this is a summary chart. That's, you know, under this rule, it's going to come in. Um, they can be really useful. Otherwise, you're just listening to the witness. and And I mean, there are times where, that's all you want to do because that light should be focused on the witness. But but when it, once it gets technical, less is more. I mean, you only want to use it because it's going to really, I mean, the jury's really going to focus on it. If you put a picture up there, that's where their eyes are going. And they're no longer listening to the witness as well, the otherwise. A lot of times, one of the devices that we've got in the, in the courtroom, our regular courtroom, is you can put a piece of evidence up, a, a picture, and then that, the witness can draw on that, you know, with, with a light with a light touch of the screen and so in a i don't know let's just say a um a shooting case well where were you officer you know in 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 this image can you orient us to you know the 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 terrain oh this is what it looks like okay where were you (laughs) what could you see from there and the officer at that point you know we've prepped and so they'll know all right if you just put the image down i'll say something like if you put the image down what could you see? And that, and uh, invariably the jury will listen to that and you can, they'll, they'll say, okay, we're going to put the image aside for a second and listen to what this person has to say.
0: I am glad that you mentioned um, having the witness use their body, drawing on a screen or, you know, doing something that um, draws the attention of jurors to what they're saying. I wanted to ask you about um, whether direct examination calls for a different type of body language or movement. Um, from other parts of the trial. And so in this case, it can be good to get the witness out of the witness box and, you know, doing a physical demonstration or um, annotating a screen or um, a a demonstrative exhibit or something in the courtroom. But what about for the attorney? Does direct examination call for different body language for them too?
1: I don't know. So for me, it's going to be I mean, stillness is the, the I, I really do try to focus the jury's attention on the witness, you know, right. be it a good witness or a bad witness. And so, like, I will I will stand at the podium, you know, with my notes or whatever in front of me. And I'm, I am I'm not moving away from the podium I'm, and, and it's just question, answer, question, answer. And hopefully we get that ping pong going. Now, if there is a really dramatic event. I will slow things down and I will wait. Uh, and so it's not, it's not like, it's not a visual. It's nothing that I'm doing that, that they would see. Cause it, I mean, if I move around a lot, if I wave my arms, they're looking at me and mm-hmm. that's not helpful. They should be focusing on the witness. But what right. I will do is pause and listen to the witness's answer. And if it's a really good one, I'm just going to pause for a moment and let it sink in. And what I might do is loop, which is kind of a a a, a pretty standard technique where okay you just said this really you know great thing that i really like and want everybody here again so you just said that now after that what happened next or i could just i mean i could just ask what happened next but but what i'm going to say you you just said you just testified that x y and z occurred what happened next and Mm -hmm. they're going to give the next hopefully, uh, you know, earth shattering piece of evidence, their testimony, and then I'll just pause. You know, I I have moved. I I have tried to move away. And you you learn this by messing it up. I have tried to make it about me when I was really early on. And I would, I would, you know, I would wave my hands and I would do something and it just never, ever works. It's just distracting.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to do is make sure that anyone who is more green in their trial career hears this and um, learns from your experience but i think that your point is well made that um if you the attorney are interested in your witness's story and you are wrapped with attention then that subliminally tells your jurors that the witness is in fact worthy of their attention too
1: 100 agree
0: So I want to follow up um, on something that you said earlier about direct being so much harder than it seems. And so my question is, what if direct is so hard, in fact, that you've kind of stunk it up and you kind of know it? At what point in the trial later on can you kind of reverse your fortune and rescue your case? And how do you do that?
1: Sure. So... (laughs) It's 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 funny because I think while you're up there on direct, you know, you're thinking in three different directions at one time, right? You're thinking about what the judge is going to do, the defense, and the jury. Uh, I guess it's four, and then the witness. And invariably, something goes wrong. In that tax case, is another good example. One witness, the CPA, one of this the the this partner in a CPA firm was on the was on the stand for three days. Her first day was terrible, and I, I think. The short answer to your question is if you've stunk it up, get to a break, get to some break, survive until some break. I mean, that's a good rule generally, because even if things are going well, you want to look back over your notes. You want to emphasize maybe a little more of of a good part. But I, I just distinctly remember on day one she was so defensive i was like let's just get to the end of the day let's just get to the end of the day now you got to be careful because you know any prep that you do is going to be subject to cross and so well we you know what did mr Beckwood tell you last night you know and and the answer should be you're doing fine he told me i was doing fine he told me to tell the truth you know you, you but what you can do you're not going to you're never going to talk to him on cross at least we don't and then on direct it, it is purely logistics hey, we're going to go into this next. We're going to recover, you know, we're going to, we need to cover this again, like that kind of thing so that they can honestly get up on the stand and say, he told me I was doing fine. He told me to tell the truth. And, and we talked about, you know, general topics we were going to cover. But for you, for the lawyer, I mean, you can, you can, you you can see that something's not working. I'm going to, I'm going to totally take a new tack. I'm going to, I'm going to do something different. Um, and a lot of times what that means for younger lawyers, is coming off your notes and listening to your witness. You, you've got to hear what they're saying, and and and, you, and and the hard part. The hard part is if if the witness is not good. It's very easy with a good witness. You feel like Clarence Darrow. With a bad witness, you feel like a you know first year law student. But but they're good and bad out there, and so you've got to listen because the good witness will give you something you want to follow up on that you didn't have in your notes. Um, and the bad witness, um, you really need to be careful with because there's a reason why they're doing what they're doing, and you know, a lot of times you can shift, you can shift uh, to something that's going to help explain that, or you can shift them off, uh, you know, off off a a topic that's irrelevant, or um, is just going to go down a rabbit hole that that is going to confuse the jury making it to the break is a big is a big thing when you've messed it up
0: bad facts i want to ask you about bad facts about your client is direct the best or the only time to in- introduce those bad facts and how do you like to introduce them
1: that's a great question and i, I early and often right it's not the only time but is a critical time um but in an opening uh you know, we we talked about that human trafficking case with, with Vinnie Brooks and in, in opening, I talked about going into a world of human prostitution, of human mm-hmm. trafficking. And I said, You're not gonna like the witnesses. You you're just not gonna like them. You're gonna hear from a young woman who did things that will not make sense to you. And she has prior felony convictions. And she and I and I just painted her as a miserable human being. You know, my instinct was to like apologize for her, um, but a very, you know, very senior, very seasoned, you know, trial attorney, my partner in that case told me, she told me, she's like, no, nope, don't do it. She's got to own it and you've got to eat it. <laughs>
0: mm.
1: And so in opening, I, I undersold the government's case and, I, and I'd and listened to her. I'd listened to Vinnie and I knew she was going to be incredible. There's a part of me that's like, yeah, she's got some problems, but wait until you hear this, folks not the approach. The approach is that she is just a broken human being that has done some horrible things. You're going to believe her because of the corroboration. And, and people are like, oh gosh, what is the government doing? Like, this sounds like a terrible case. if It's, it's totally relying on her. But then they hear her and they see the corroboration hmm. and they're like, I don't even care about the corroboration. She was so good.
0: Ah, you know? Fascinating.
1: So direct, I mean, so in opening and direct, you have to do it because otherwise the defense will. And they'll, 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 crush you.
0: Yeah. What do you think is a common um, misapprehension or mistake that people make during direct?
1: I, you know, I think I think trying you know trying to make it about the lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, not making it about the witness, um, and not letting the witness you know tell their story um and and now you've got to structure that and you got to prep so i mean if you don't prep you're i mean I, I, truly prep is 90% of it um it takes okay. it takes the time it takes energy it takes effort it takes meeting with that witness time and time again um so that they develop a sense of comfort and that they develop um familiarity with the evidence but so i guess the biggest the biggest mistake people make is not prepping. I think it's very, very difficult for DAs to walk into trial with three cases in their hand and they don't know which one's going to go. And, and, and like they're truly looking for their witnesses in the hallway. Are you officer so-and-so? Great, get on the stand. Oh <laughs> and all boy. A I mean, that's and, and you, truly all you can say is what happened next. But if you do have the time to prep, you've got to prep. And then once you've prepped, it should be about you doing everything you can possibly do to draw out that witness's story because they've got a reason for doing. Most humans have a reason for doing what they're doing, and if 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 it's your witness and you're trying to prove a product liability case or or you're trying to prove some kind of a you know a, a plaintiff's case, you know there, there's there's a reason for what they've done, um, and 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 hopefully you have a witness who's not. I mean we've we've had witnesses who are also involved in the illegal conduct. Um, but hopefully you're you're moving upstream uh to the to the larger the larger folks but but making it about the lawyer not prepping and then trying to control the direct in a way that um requires you to lead um not asking who what where when why how those will kill you and get you i mean you're first you're going to start drawing objections And then second, the the jury is going to look at you and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, you know, this guy clearly wants the witness to say X, Y, and Z, but the witness doesn't seem to want to say X, Y, and Z. You kind of have to back into it. And so um, leading during direct is just a a, a huge problem.
0: So those are some good maxims or um, personal rules to follow for direct. What do you think listeners need to know about redirect examination, if anything?
1: Um, well, I would, you know, I would stay within the scope of direct because that's that's part. Of, um, this will not let you go outside the scope of direct and then cross. And then I will. I think it's very useful. It uh, keeps the judge online, and then it, and it helps with the jury too to say something along the lines of, "Okay, on cross, you were asked about X, Y, and Z." You know, and, and then and, and then the judge knows that you're within the scope of direct and within cross, the jury knows that it truly is a redirect. Um, I mean, they don't really necessarily know what that is. They know you get a chance to get up there again, but they're going to appreciate your efficiency. Um, and so not wasting their time is is always um, is always a good thing.
0: Yeah, um, for sure.
1: And so you were asked X, Y and Z, um, the, the you know, defense attorney cut you off. What was the rest of your answer? Oh, well, what I was going to say was, you know, usually that's pretty, that can be pretty helpful.
0: Yes. Great point, Mike. Thank you. We're now at the end of our interview, but before we wrap it up, I've got a new signature sign-off question to ask. Well, two actually. Here's the first one. Is there a trial, whether modern day or in the past, you wish you could have been on?
1: Um... I mean, I'm probably tipping my hand as a prosecutor, but I would love to have been on the uh, the Paul Manafort uh, investigation and trial. Um, maybe the sentencing. Maybe it was what I really needed to be in.
0: Yeah, I wish you could have been on that one too.
1: No, that's a great team. Um, that was. I mean, they were they were obviously a great team and and a very you know with a very challenging kind of situation. But um, I think any any honestly any trial that where. We're, I mean, in, in, in the criminal context, if you've got somebody who knows better but still flaunts the law, it's, you know, it's one thing to to try, you know, a, a, a courier in a drug trafficking case who maybe or maybe, you know, had a choice in what they were doing and, and you know, economically, you know, they, they did this for, for economic reasons. A guy mm-hmm. like Paul Manafort. Um, yeah. You know, who had every advantage in life, uh, but still, you know, just just refused to acknowledge the rule of law um, into his own personal you know, advantage. And and it was just about him. Yeah. In a heartbeat, I would love to have been on that trial.
0: And here's my second question. I know it's hard to condense 15 years of hard earned experience into just a few sentences, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. If you had just one piece of advice to offer to listeners, what would it be? Nice. One
1: piece of advice. I think for I look, I can't talk to the other types of law, but for a prosecutor, it it has to be to seek the truth. And so I, I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to agents, I've talked to witnesses, and I'm like, look, it it what matters is what happened, and, and what matters is the truth. And so if you tell the truth, there's nothing, there's nothing the defense can do to you. There's nothing that you're going to be blamed for. Somebody else has done this. And, um, it is, it is a search, all the rules of evidence, everything, corroboration, it is a search for the truth. And so, um, we often will find with a witness, if, if they're not telling the truth, we know ahead of time because we've looked at all of the, the corroborating evidence, the phone calls, the, the, the papers, the wires, whatever it may be. And then we'll confront them with it. And a lot of times it's bringing it, bringing that witness around to the truth. Um, now, we're going to have to disclose that the witness told us X, Y and Z, you know, uh, initially. But eventually they got to the truth and the truth is not their fault the truth is just what it is and so i think if you can find the truth then you actually have a case that's indefensible and so if that's products liability if it's prosecution there's nothing that the defense there's no cross-examination that undermines a truthful witness we had we had uh, the wife of a lawyer get on the stand, and she said, and and she, um, you know, she told her story. And and before we put her on the stand, we said, you got to tell the truth. She was obliterated on cross because, mm-hmm. of course, this lawyer knew everything about her and and had every had every piece of inside information that we couldn't get or or never even would have thought to ask for but she told the truth, she stuck to the truth and, and and the jury was like, you know what, we're with her.
0: Well, search for the truth, that is uh, timely advice indeed. A very special thanks to Mike Beckwith for sharing his insights on direct examination. I hope you've learned a thing or two about a thing or two. And if so, one of the ways other trial lawyers can find this podcast is through the rating system on Apple. So if you liked the episode, please help spread the word and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You may also share your thoughts by emailing us at at Nita.org. Whichever way, we would love to hear from you. I'll be back again in February with another episode. Until then, have a great month. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.